Let's give thanks to our Lord and ask Him to send out His Spirit to help us as we open together hearing and receiving the Word of life. Father, we thank You and we praise You in the name of Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, for the infinite grace that we have received. Lord, Your Word confronts us with an unsolvable problem for, from our perspective from through our power alone, we, we could never deal with the problem of indwelling sin and all of its consequences. Uh, we pray that as we close together our, our study today of the book of Judges, that you would impress upon our souls the sinfulness of sin. Uh, Father, would we not shy away uh, from looking into the mirror and, and, and beholding man as he really is. But also, the Holy Spirit, will you show to us the overwhelming, long-suffering grace of our triune God poured out upon us through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the applicatory work of his Spirit. We pray, Father, for your namesake, that you would Make these things known to us by the power of your Spirit, by the authority of Christ and his word. I ask for your help for me uh, to declare such wonderful things with clarity and with power, to bring glory to the name of our God and to bring good uh, to the souls of your people. We ask this in his name. Amen. You take your seat and turn uh, for the last time, at least on this journey, uh, to the book of Judges. Uh, Lord willing, we will complete chapter 21 today. I, I gave some thought to, uh, after this message, come back and do sort of a wrap-up message. I've done that in, in some of our series in the past, but as I, the more I study chapter 21, the more I'm, I'm convinced this is the wrap-up. Uh, in, in chapter 21, we find all of the major themes of Judges set before us, and primarily the, the sin and folly of man. Uh, we, we behold man in, in all of his depravity, even those who name the name of Yahweh. And we find that apart from the power and the authority and the revelation of God, man is stuck doing what is right in his own eyes, and it's not very good. Have you ever looked back on decisions that you made and think, boy, that was dumb? And I'm not talking about things where you, you, know, where you willfully violated God's law. Uh, I wouldn't ask for a show of hands, but there's no one here who's not guilty of what David referred to as those presumptuous sins. There's no one here who's not guilty of such things. I'm talking about the things where you, you actually search the Scriptures. I mean, you, you thought, this seems right to me. I'm going to do this thing in, in, in retrospect. Maybe that was the next day. Maybe that was weeks later. Maybe that was years later. You look back and man, that was foolish. That was wrong. And I can think of times... In my own life, when, I, when I've done just that, even, even took the time to seek out counsel, I, one, one particular circumstance came to mind years ago as a young man in my late 20s, and, and I, I was looking to make a, an important decision. I sat down with the chairman of the deacons. Our pastor was not the kind of guy that really took those conversations, so I sat down with a, an older godly man, and he listened to me. He prayed with me. Uh, he, he, he was kind to me, received me well. I was really nervous going to talk to him. But he received me well, and he gave me horrible advice. Essentially, he told me, do what was right in your own eyes, and God will bless it. 
And, and, and we paid the consequences for that for years to come. And, and sometimes our, the folly is not the direct result of some particular sin, but it's due to what are called the noetic effects of sin. Sin corrupts our minds. It corrupts our thinking. It corrupts our reason and logic and understanding, even when we have the Word of God. We need the ongoing work. We, need, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning. We need the ongoing work of Christ's prophetical office, teaching us, instructing us. And we need the ongoing work of his priestly office, applying the atoning benefits to us of his sacrificial death by means of his spirit. And don't we also need his kingly office? We need Christ to subdue us. To, to sometimes, as we said in Sunday school, sometimes it's, it's that prodding and, and gentle leadership. Other times it's to take us by the ear and drag us where our wills don't want to go. We need that, don't we? So Judges 21 comes to us in the midst of a world that's, that's just filled with sin and folly. And, and if we're honest, if we're honest, it's not even just out there in the wild, bad world that we find sin and folly, is it? We find it within the church of Jesus Christ. And even closer to home, we find it in our own hearts. We find ourselves chafing sometimes against what we know to be true and right. And yet there's part of us that says, but I don't want to do that. Chapter 21 of Judges finds us right there. And as you read, I hope you have, I hope you've read it ahead, I'm going to read it in a moment, but you read chapter 21, doesn't it leave you with a sense of, of moral ambiguity? A sense of moral confusion? I mean, the, comment, the, the narrator doesn't really even necessarily comment explicitly on how wrong the things that we find in the 21st chapter are. And yet, we know from the whole witness of Scripture that these things were objectively morally, legally wrong in the sight of God. And yet it can leave us with a certain sense of ambiguity, confusion. But you know what? That's the point. That's precisely the point that the narrator wants us to understand. When men depart from the law word of God and depend upon their own understanding and do not depend upon the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, this is always the effect. This is always the effect. When, when men seek their own way and operate according to their own wisdom, their own understanding, the result is confusion. It's ambiguity. It's corruption. It's uncertainty. And often, it's outright evil. Title today's sermon, I take it from the hymn that we sang, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. Because despite all that we find in Judges 21, it ends on a hopeful note. It's an implicit one, but it ends on a hopeful note. Praise God, the Bible doesn't end at the end of Judges 21. We ought to be grateful for that. So the sermon today is just going to have two points. We, we find, we're going to meditate and consider, first of all, the long-suffering grace of our God. That, actually, that's the second point. That's the, long, the long-suffering grace of our God. But before that, we have to spend some time considering and meditating upon the sinfulness of sin. Sin corrupts, and it corrupts all the way through. And, and we find an expression of that in, in vivid, even graphic terms in Judges 21. Completing a narrative that we know started in chapter 19, 19, 20, and 21 all go together. So let's read the text together. I'll read the chapter in its entirety. We'll pray that the Lord gives to us the grace both to understand and and to hear 
what the Spirit is actually teaching to us. Here now, this is the word of God. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin their brother and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from, the, from Israel. Yet, we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, say, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man, his wife, from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant, great, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives, according to the number, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from every man, and went, there, and went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's consider in the first place the sinfulness of sin. And, and, and the Lord has given to us these details, not so that we can merely wallow in the mire of sin in, in, for, the, for the case of some sort of, of, of voyeuristic interest in these things, but no, he's given it to us for our instruction as an example to us, a negative example, for us to heed and understand. Now, when we see in chapter 21, you, you, you know, especially if you've been here over the last few weeks, you know what's happened starting in, in, verse, or in chapter 19. It started with a runaway concubine and a Levite that goes to fetch her, and they stay in an Israelite city rather than a pagan city, and they find out that's not a safe place after all. And this woman is violated all night long because her own husband, I'm going to use air quotes, her husband gave her out to a mob of men. They violated her all night long, and it's somewhat ambiguous, the actual cause of death, but she's, she's dead. She's been murdered. And the tribes assemble together. They come to this judgment that we need, to, we need to lay waste, utterly destroy the city of Gibeah. Because not only did they do such a thing, but when the order went out to the tribe of Benjamin to hand over those evil men, they wouldn't do it. They participated and covered up the wickedness. And so Israel set to battle against Benjamin. They lost the first two battles. They finally win the third one, ambush, burn the city down, set it on fire, and lay waste to everything in the city. Man, woman, child, beast. Devoted to, to total destruction, which is what God commanded them to do to pagan cities, not to Israelite cities. But that wasn't enough. Israel, at that point, went on Sherman's march through the south. They burned everything. They went and destroyed and laid waste to everything every Benjaminite city they could find. And there were 600 men. We're told 600 men. I think the evidence is that the Israelites didn't know exactly how many, but there was a very small number of Benjaminite soldiers who escaped to the mountains and hid out in the caves for four months. And now, all of a sudden, Israel, in a sense, has sort of come to her senses and said, oh no, what has happened here? There are only 600 men left, and there are no women left. And we made this rash vow. We, we just now learned this in chapter 21. It's not recorded in chapter 20. It's recorded for us here. That apparently as they're gathering together and all their passion to, and their, their zeal for a sense of holy war, they make this vow. We will not give our daughters in marriage to the Benjaminites. Now, we know from the rest of Judges, they had no qualms with giving their daughters to other pagan tribes against the law of God. But now they've decided we will treat Benjamin as a pagan and we will not give them our wives. They make this vow. We, in, fact, in fact, we learn about two different vows. They also make a vow that whatever people who did not hear the summons and did not come to gather at Mizpah, that they will put them to death. Now we see this weeping and lamenting here at Bethel. The people of God assemble before him, they petition the Lord, and they, we see that they actually implicitly blame God for this predicament. They cry out to the Lord, Oh God, why did this happen? Now, haven't we been guilty of this too? We, we do something really foolish. And then we have the audacity to say, God, why did this happen? Well, cause and effect. You acted foolishly, and now have the consequences of your own actions. But they, they implicitly blame God. In fact, they even say that this, this tribe that did not come, Jabesh Gilead, this city that did not come, they didn't come to the gathering of 
The Lord is what they claim. But the Lord did not summon his people. A Levite with a concubine cut up like a sacrificial animal summoned the people of Israel. And then they call upon the Lord. But notice something very important. As we look at <clears throat> verse 3, they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be no, or should be one tribe lacking in Israel? Note very carefully, there is no answer from the Lord. There's no answer from the Lord. The Word of God wants us to see very clearly, God was not in this. Whatever happens next, God is not in this. God did not order this. God did not condone this. God did not endorse it. This is where the tragic turn takes place. Rather than waiting upon the Lord, they take matters into their own hands. And notice, it's the very next day. Now think about this. You have this, you, 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 you're, they're, they're gathering together. They, it's kind of come to their senses. They're thinking, we have the risk now of one of the tr 12 tribes of Israel being blotted out entirely because these men don't have wives. Is that a problem that has to be solved today? I mean, these, presumably most of these are young men. They're fighting age men. Next month, get married. A year from now, get married. There's still hope for the tribe of, of Benjamin. This is not a problem that has to be solved today, but this is often the way we think. Men in their passions will also assume, often assume that the answer has to come now. We can't wait upon the Lord. In, in, the, in my sermon prep process, I usually, by hand, kind of make some initial notes and maybe sketch out a preliminary outline and Thinking of this earlier in the week, my original sort of working title of the sermon was sort of a tongue-in-cheek, how not to deal with your sin. And the three-point outline I had jotted down, how not to deal with your sin, is number one, blame God for your own folly and sin. Number two, refuse to wait upon the Lord for rescue. Three, trust your own wisdom to deliver you. I think I could hazard a guess that most of us have followed pretty accurately that three-point plan, haven't we? Blame God. Seek to deliver ourselves. And refuse to wait upon him. Then we see the men of Israel hatch this tragically ironic, and I'll mention why later that's ironic, but it's a tragically ironic, it's an awful plan to repopulate the tribes of Israel, or the tribe of Israel. My favorite line, it's an opening line in the, the, little, the movie Peter Rabbit from a few years ago. Peter Rabbit was accused of having a laser-like focus on a half-thought-out plan. And that's exactly what's going on here. They have this laser focus on something that is, I mean, it's, it's an important matter, but it's not a matter that's such a, that has the same kind of time sensitivity as they seem to give to it. Right? And I've counseled many young people who are eager to get married. They want to get married like today. And I understand why for a lot of different reasons. But sometimes it's wise to counsel, you know, if you waited two or three months, that's not the end of the world. Your, your, your marriage and your plans for life are not going to be derailed because you might wait a couple of months to better put yourself in position to care for a wife, for example. But do you see the tragic irony? Israel had just waged a holy war had gone to war against their own brothers, against the men of Gibeah, because these men of Gibeah had participated in the rape and the murder of a concubine. And now, then the whole tribe of Benjamin refuses to hand over these guilty men. But now, Israel, operating under their own wisdom, according to their own understanding, set this plot in motion to murder an entire city. 
including women and children, and then sanctioned the forcible rape of 400 virgins, followed by 200 more to be kidnapped and forcibly raped. George Schwab comments, he says, this is the second time in Judges where daughters came out dancing after an oath was made. The result of the first oath was that she died a virgin. The result of the second, they forcibly lost their virginity. This is just folly at its extreme. A perversion of their thinking. And they actually thought, they actually thought this was right. And they actually plotted together and thought, this is a good idea. I'm really, really proud of ourselves for coming up with such a solution. So we need to understand the sin on display in Judges 21. We understand not only it's, it's the depth of its depravity, but something else very important, and this is something we've seen throughout the book of Judges, is that not only is the sin itself wicked, foolish, and, and God-defying, meaning it, it violates his law, it defies his explicit commands, but sin also corrupts man's thinking and reason. Because they had, had participated in all manner of sin, living like the pagans among them, you become like what you worship. And sin defiles even your thinking. It clouds your judgment. So not only, sin is, not only is sin a consequence of folly, but we also know that sin begets folly. Sin corrupts our thinking in such a way that more sin will almost inevitably follow. Sin corrupts sound reason. It, it, it corrupts our very perception of what is right and what is wrong. And, and even the elders of Israel, look at this, in, in chapter 16, or verse 16, the elders of the congregation said, this is after they'd already forcibly kidnapped 400 and laid waste to an entire city. They took a vow, whoever doesn't show up to this assembly, we're going to kind of blame God for that one too, but whoever doesn't show up, we're going to be put to death. Why was it that the, men, that the women and children were also put to death? If they want to argue that the fighting males who should have showed up and didn't, maybe you could twist that in some way to say they were guilty, but the innocent parties there in the city, and yet in their zeal, they go lay waste all of it. And, and, and the orders were, you go. This was intentional. 12,000 of their bravest men. How brave do you have to be to kill women and children? 12,000 of the bravest men to go lay waste to the city. They found 400 unmarried, probably very young women. Bring them back. Now they send word of peace to Benjamin, and Benjamin returns, and now they realize, uh-oh, we've only solved two-thirds of the problem, numerically speaking. We have 400, come to find out there were 600 survivors of the men of Benjamin. Now we need 200 more. The elders of Israel, the ones who should have been keeping the peace, the ones who should have been teaching and instructing, advising, giving forth wisdom to the rest of the tribes. I mean, you understand, young unmarried men in their zeal and warped minds do what they might do, but this are the elders in Israel. The elders of the congregation said, what shall we do? Verse 17, they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. See, they've forgotten a very important promise that God had made to them. God had said, I will sustain my people. God said, I will deliver my people. God said, I will give the land to my people. And now, based on their own folly, they've left only 600 survivors, and they're thinking, unless we act, unless we intervene, unless we do something, 
this tribe's going to be gone. It's going to come to extinction. And so, ah, we have an idea. There's an annual worship feast, an annual worship festival at Shiloh, which was, according to Deuteronomy, that was the sanctioned place of worship for God at this time. Jerusalem was still in the hands of the Jebusites. It was not yet appointed the place of God's worship. Shiloh was. There's an annual feast. And it just so happens, there's a, there's a group of young girls who always come out as part of those festivities, and they dance before the Lord. Here's what we do. The 200 men of Benjamin who haven't yet been paired up with a captive wife, go lie in ambush for her. And pick out a young adolescent girl that fancies you. And just take her. Bring her back to your home and force her to be your wife. Good idea, right? See, you see how corrupt was their thinking. And we've noticed this over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. How sin has this profound warping effect on our judgment, our understanding, our thinking. And now the very elders of Israel planned and condoned the violent seizing of young women for the purpose of forcible rape. See, when a man or a nation becomes mired in sin, he will not think rationally. He will not think soberly. He will not think carefully. His reason is distorted. His logic is flawed. He may genuinely think what he's doing is good and wise. You can, you can log on to social media any day this next week, and you will see evidence of this, won't you? Romans 1 is true. It's coming more and more true right before our eyes. God gives people over to a depraved mind. He gives them over to their own thinking and the consequences of their own thinking. And this, such a man may genuinely think what he's doing is, is actually good, that it's, that it's wise, that it's the right thing to do, and yet the sober clarity of God's grace will reveal the deep and sad folly of his thinking. This is why, even for God's people, the Word of God admonishes us in Proverbs chapter 3, trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from him. Depart from evil. So if Judges leaves us in the end with a sense of moral ambiguity, sense of moral confusion, then I believe the author has accomplished his intended effect. The very last verse tells us, doesn't it? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, the, 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 the prevailing mantra in our day, if we can summarize the, the ethos of our, our current time period in history, follow your heart. Just, just trust your gut, follow your heart. Saints, that is 180 degrees opposed to the entire message of the Scripture. 180 degrees opposed to it. It's not 5 degrees off course. It's not 20 degrees off course. It's completely opposed to what God has commanded His people. Even His people who possess His Spirit and His Word, He says, don't trust your own understanding. Now, it's easy for us to say that in, in the abstract, but on a daily basis, when we're confronted with the desires of our own flesh, and we're confronted with an opportunity in business to cut a corner for the greater good, right? 
When, when we're confronted with a temptation in our marriage, it's just a little transgression. We're, we're just allowing a little bit of, of anger to remain without dealing with it. In, in our ordinary relationships with one another, that's just a little bit of sin. It's, it, it's, it's okay. And we lean on our own understanding, don't we? we? We'll rationalize it. We're all good at it. We can rationalize almost anything, can't we? And convince ourselves, no, this is good. You know, this is, this is all right. This is fine. Sin will always plunge us deeper into our depravity than we ever thought we could descend. That, that's just a theological fact. Sin will take us farther away from the Lord than we ever thought we would wonder. But thankfully, thankfully, the Bible doesn't end here. The, the message and, and the reality of God's dealing with his covenant people doesn't end right here. And we find hints, even in Judges 21, that the story is, is not finished. The Lord our God is, is a faithful, long-suffering God, despite his people. Despite his people. So let's consider, in the second place, the long-suffering suffering grace of the Lord. And again, we see that how the book closes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. Now, does this mean there was no structure of authority in Israel? That there was no governing principle? That there were no laws? That it was complete anarchy? Does this mean Israel simply needed someone to enforce the laws and restore order? It doesn't mean that. It means far, far, far more than that. Israel did, in fact, have Yahweh as their king. They just wouldn't acknowledge him. Israel had the laws and the statutes given to them by God that were perfectly designed to govern them in the promised land. And the promise, of course, or the problem, of course, is that Israel didn't, not only did they not acknowledge Yahweh as the king, they didn't follow his laws. They had a perfect revelation given to them. They had a king, an almighty king, an eternal king to rule over them. They rejected him. The problem is far worse than just the absence of, of a human authority. The problem is much, much deeper. Not only did Israel fail to follow Yahweh's law, Israel could not follow Yahweh's law. Israel couldn't do it. Neither can we. Neither can we. The law was never designed to change God's people. That's not blasphemy. That's not an attack on God's law. It was never designed to do that. God never intended it to change his people. It was never designed to produce an internal reformation within them. The law was good. The law was holy. But the law, the Lord did not give his people his law for the purpose of reforming them from the inside out. The 18th century Scottish preacher, Ralph Erskine, was in the habit of sometimes after his sermons, he would, he would create um, poems that sort of made some of his key points. In one of his sermons, he, he penned this verse, A rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw, but when the gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. The law was commanded. The law said, go and do, but it didn't give you any power to do it. 
The law said this is what's required of you, but it never changed anything in you in order to do that. And now it wasn't you know, the same kind of pithy, poetic verse, but the Apostle Peter expresses an almost identical idea on the occasion of the, the Jerusalem Council, what became known as the Jerusalem Council. In Acts chapter 15, you don't have to turn there, but what was the problem, and you know the story, the Judaizers, they were Jewish teachers who were saying, in order to become a Christian, you have to first become a Jew, which means you have to take on the mark of circumcision and, and agree to keep the entire law of Moses, and then and only then could you become a Christian. Well, this became no small disturbance throughout, throughout the, 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 the new churches that were being planted, especially, as you can imagine, among the Gentiles. I mean, imagine you're a Gentile. You've heard, you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ for the very first time. You've received the Spirit of God. And now there's these, these itinerant preachers come in, and they, they gather in your congregation that morning, and they say, well, here's what you have to do. You're not really Christians yet. Well, I thought we were. We've been baptized. We've received the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but you're not Jewish. You've got to take on the mark of circumcision and be a Jew first in order to be a Christian. And so the elders and the apostles gather together in Jerusalem, and, and after much debate, Peter stands up, and this is what he said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter's kind of establishing rhetorically his credibility. I'm the one that was sort of appointed by God, and you all know this, to go and speak primarily to Gentile congregations, to Gentile unbelievers, and declare to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. You all know that's what I've been doing. And God knows, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, meaning between the Jews and the Gentiles. Having, listen to this, having cleansed their hearts by faith, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter's an apostle. Peter trained with, walked with, ate with, slept next to Christ for three years. And Peter said, we couldn't do this. We couldn't bear this law. And yet you want to put this yoke on the necks of these Gentiles who've received the gift of the Spirit. They've been cleansed by faith, just like us. And Peter goes on to say, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. He says, we Jews believe this, and it has to apply to them too. And then the writer of Hebrews makes a much longer and, and deeper theological argument. Go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews 7. I want to walk kind of briefly through this. But here, the apostle of the Hebrews makes a direct connection between the saving grace of God himself and kingship. See, the writer of the Judges says that the real problem was that there was no king in Israel. Well, what kind of king will get the job done? What kind of king was needed? What was the real nature of the deficit? It wasn't just a, a good law and order king who would enforce the rules and statutes. That wasn't the problem. Because as we've just seen, the real problem was in the very hearts of men who would sit back in their corrupt thinking and think, we're on the right track here. 
we're going to condone, sanction, promote, and plan for mass kidnapping and rape and call it good. See, merely restating the law to them and enforcing the law externally wasn't going to fix that problem. Right? It wasn't going to solve that. In Hebrews chapter 7, now we're kind of picking up here in, in the middle of, of a longer argument, but he introduces, he's already introduced this man named Melchizedek. He, he introduced that back in, in chapter 5. But here he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Now that's something interesting already, that he's both king and priest. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, this is Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what his name means, king of righteousness. But he is also king of Salem. Shalom. He's the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how, this, how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And he goes on to argue that, I mean, we all know that the, the lesser is the one who gives a tithe to the greater. Well, Abraham was universally revealed, revered as great, the father of Israel, the father and the inheritor of the covenant promises given to Israel, Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. But he says, but Abraham actually gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, but what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. And he's speaking here, he's making the case that this, the priest who is risen after the order of Melchizedek is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both king, king of peace, the king of righteousness, but he's also a priest. But the problem is, Judah was not the priestly tribe, was it? Levi was the priestly tribe. Verse 14, or verse 13. For the one on, of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, this wasn't a genetic trail. This is something else. But by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, listen to this, because of its weakness and uselessness. See, it's, it's not, I'm not committing blasphemy by saying the law of God did not a, accomplish the changing of his people. 
God's Word says this. This former commandment, this old covenant, is set aside because of its weaknesses. What were its weaknesses? Look at verse 19. The law made nothing perfect. It made nothing perfect. It didn't transform anything. It didn't reform anything. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. We have here a picture in Judges 21 when he's he's describing the problem. There's no king in Israel. Again, he's not looking for, for a human man to come in with the sword of lawful authority and enforce these external constraints. What's needed is a kingly priest, a priestly king, who comes based on his own perfection. Even years later, when David would ascend the the throne of God, a a man after God's own heart, a man that, that God directly called for his anointing as king. But even David, we know, was not a perfect king. David had his own bout with murder. Dare I say it, rape. David was plagued with his own thinking. This is right in his own eyes. We need a king who's not so encumbered, who's not, in, not inhabited by a dwelling sin as we are. We need a different kind of king. Now Jesus Christ has come. He is the king of peace. He is the king of righteousness. He also is the great high priest who can actually change the hearts of his people. Do you know this, this king? I mean, this is where the, the book of Judges ends with this, there's no king in Israel. But doesn't that raise the question, but is there a king for you? I mean, is there someone ruling over you in such a way, not just merely externally constraining you, like a parent does his child? As, as Paul wrote to the Galatian church, the law was like a tutor. I mean, it was an outward constraint. But do you have a king who actually rules you from the inside out? Who has transformed you? Who's given you new life by his spirit? Who's given you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone? The book of Judges closes with moral chaos. and It closes with moral confusion. And, and the people went on their way back to their homes acting as if they had solved the problem. He tells us, Each man went back to his own tribe and family, back to his inheritance. Problem solved, nothing else for us to do. Brothers and sisters, may we not walk away today thinking in the same way. As if, okay, we've we've got a a renewed purpose, a renewed sense of conviction that we're going to do better this time. We're going to follow the law more closely this time. Or will we will, are we willing to submit ourselves to a king who will actually change us? Who will renew our affections? Who will progressively transform us in such a way that our minds are renewed? That we begin to think as he thinks, to want what he wants, to be self-governed as he would govern. 
the men of Israel waged a holy war against their own kinsmen because of a rape and murder. Then, with a falsely assured conscience, they returned to their homes believing that the murder that they had just sanctioned, the state-sanctioned kidnapping and rape of 600 young women, was good and right. They knew no work of transforming grace in them. And we have to ask ourselves, do, do we know that transforming grace in us? Do we know this king? But here's the temptation that comes at this moment. Temptation comes like this. In your own heart, you're tempted to think, but I've never done anything like that. And I wouldn't do anything like that. That's vile. It's unspeakable. I couldn't even contemplate doing something like that. I wouldn't even give approval or condone anyone who did. Do not think that way. And perhaps that's true. By God's grace, that is, that is true, that pretty much everyone in the room hasn't done those unspeakable particular things. But don't miss the bigger point. Each one of us has certainly done all kinds of things according to our own wisdom, haven't we? we we've all been duped by our own understanding, haven't we? we? We've all been led astray by the folly of our own hearts, haven't we? Each one of us, without exception. Every one of us, everyone who is honest can testify that he's done what he thought seemed right at the time and then later lamented the wrong he had done. Sometimes with a clear conscience, good intentions, all that kind of, you know the expression about good intentions and where that's paved, right? And you and I need the transforming work of God's grace. Nothing less than that. We need the inward work of King Jesus through his Holy Spirit, according to his word, to transform us. And apart from the perfection of God's word, that's illumined in such a way by his spirit. Our thinking, our reasoning, our planning is really no, not fundamentally better than our pagan neighbor, is it? It's not, it's not enough to have the word of God if we don't actually study it and apply it. It doesn't do us good to have, each, have the word of God in a community of faith if we don't hold each other accountable to it and exhort one another in accordance with it. Apart from the perfection of God's word, we're all left in the same place. Living out our own understanding, doing right what is according to our own eyes. Now, think about this. As Judges 21 closes, and, and we are left with that kind of nasty taste in your mouth, if we're honest, about what's going on in Israel. And no longer just Benjamin, all of Israel is guilty, Right? And we're left with this sort of bitter taste. We think, what, what's going on now? There is absolutely no earthly reason why Israel should have existed anymore after this point. There's not a good explanation for this, is there? Other than God's long-suffering. The overwhelming grace of Yahweh. And His covenant-keeping faithfulness. That's the, only, that's the only explanation why Israel is even still there. I mean, think about this. Do you need further evidence of God's transforming grace? Can, can you think of other prominent Benjaminites that were still around long after these events? Of course, immediately we think of Saul, King Saul, 
He was crowned king. He was head and shoulders above all the men. And the, the, they, the Israelites cried out, give us a, a king like the nations. And they selected Saul. Who, by the way, you remember where Saul was from? His hometown was Gibeah. Even that's a work of God's grace. Benjamin was still around. I mean, it was, it, was, it was corrupt. God did not sanction how the people handled this. But God in his kind providence preserved the people. But let's look even much further in history. Another prominent Benjaminite. Another Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Who would become the Apostle Paul. Was a man of Benjamin. These were his ancestors. And God in his wisdom, in his perfect providence, in his kindness, used even the sinfulness of Paul's great, 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 great ancestors to produce the greatest Christian theologian who ever lived. The writer of more of the New Testament than any other human author. God used the wickedness of his depraved kinsmen. And then Paul asks, as he's wrestling through in Romans, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's wrestling with, what about Israel? Israel has been wholly unfaithful. Israel has been utterly faithless. Israel, if there's a way to, to disobey God, they have found it. And, and Paul's asking the question, what about Israel? He says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? He says, by no means, and I am exhibit A. That's what he says. By no means, for I myself... I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Isn't God's grace amazing? That he would preserve such a people. And that Paul could testify in this way. He says, God has not rejected his people with whom, or people whom he foreknew. Shouldn't that give us hope and encouragement? Because we just read from Hebrews. We rest, saints, under a better covenant. And if that older, flawed covenant God held fast to, regardless of how wicked his people were, how much more hope do we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, despite our sin and folly? Now, this is not a license to sin, and Paul's already covered that ground in the book of Romans. May it never be, he said, should we, should we just continue to sin that grace may abound? No, 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 you don't miss my point, Paul says. But also don't miss the other side of that. We have, we have no ability even to comprehend the degree, the magnitude, the depth of God's grace. And the scriptures testify to us. The Saul of Tarsus, it wasn't as if we can say, well, but things had changed with Benjamin. Over the years, things got way better with Benjamin. It was a whole different people now. I mean, there must have been some, that infusion of those, those, that, that young blood must have really helped him. No, that, we can't argue that. King Saul tells us that, that Benjamin wasn't any better. And Saul of Tarsus can tell us Benjamin wasn't any better. Well, Paul testifies about himself. The scriptures testify about the apostle Paul before the Lord saved him, that he was a murderer and a blasphemer, a persecutor. Listen, listen to Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1. His own testimony says in verse 12, I thank him. Who gave me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. That's thoroughly Benjamin, isn't it? But, 
but I receive mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. So he's saying this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel. That's the answer to judges. That Emmanuel would come. God with us. God present as prophet, priest, and king among us. And if that's not enough evidence, you're still not convinced, go read chapter 7 of the book of the Revelation. 12,000, which represents an incomprehensible, perfect number of each of the 12 tribes of Benjamin, or each 12, 12 tribes of Israel, including Benjamin, are listed there. Sealed. That's the word used, seal, which means permanently, irrevocably joined to God for eternity. Seal. By the blood of Christ, by his merit alone. Benjamin is included in God's infinite grace. And that grace overcomes the greatest of Benjamin's sin. And see, if, if we, it, it's, it's unpleasant to wallow in the depth of Israel's depravity, but if we really don't grasp how deep they had gone, aren't we tempted to think, well, God's grace is awesome, but I don't know if it's that awesome. But if he can save them, is there hope for you? If he can save Benjamin, is there hope for me? Yes, absolutely. That's the glory of it. As we just sang this morning, sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. This grace is available to you. Not sometime in the future, today. We see later in the book of Hebrews, today, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. Do not rebel against God. The gospel has been proclaimed in your hearing. The grace of Christ is available to you to transform you from the inside out, not to just help you conform externally to a list of rules and statutes and laws, but to transform you, to cleanse you of your sin, and by, by further steps, to sanctify you and perfect you and prepare you for eternity face-to-face -face with God in glory. And the Scripture says, don't harden your heart. Don't resist that. Come and believe this gospel. You stand today in the presence of a God who is a consuming fire. The fact that you can't lay your eyes on him doesn't mean he's not here. He's a consuming fire. And yet, he has satisfied that consuming wrath against those who believe that he has sent his own son to bear the sins of his people. He's placed life before you today. Will you live in him? And by his blood, we've been cleansed, we've been pardoned, we've been sealed for the day of his return. Will you believe that? Will you place your hope there and there only and not trust your own understanding, not trust your own judgment, don't trust your own eyes, don't trust your own reason. Submit yourself to Christ. He is a faithful one. Let's pray together.
Father, we are so thankful for your, your perseverance with us. Your faithfulness exceeds our comprehension. Your loving kindness escapes the limitations of our, of our minds to comprehend. We pray that you will continue this work of perfecting your people. Your word declares to us very clearly that your will is for our sanctification. We pray that you will make us more like Jesus. And in doing so, you will create in us a greater love for one another, a greater love for our neighbor, a greater striving after true holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We pray that as we prepare to observe and receive the supper of our Lord, that that you will use these means, this, this ordinary bread and ordinary wine, to increase our faith, that we might rest truly and only upon the promise of our Savior. It's in him that we pray. Amen.